If you would turn there in one moment, we will stand and read verses 13, oh, pardon me, verses 28 through 31. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? Beginning at verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Please be seated. Evacuation before invasion, that's what we're talking about this morning. And the Lord has been quite emphatic with his warnings throughout this 13th chapter as we've been considering the last of the last days. Uh, This is something that God wants us to learn, to be familiar with. Uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not called the veil of Jesus Christ. Uh, It is the revelation. It is put out in the open. And as I was preparing for this yesterday, such a nice day weather-wise, sitting in my garage, I got to the bottom of my first round of notes, and I just uh, typed in ponder, just to think about these things. And Peter said it this way in his second letter in the third chapter. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? And then he continued, because he was talking about the end of the world when he wrote this. In the 14th verse of Second Peter, he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. The point is that end time study is not to be wasted on our uh, desire to know these things. It must go beyond that. It must at some point be... Uh, processed internally in our heads and our hearts to, Lord, why are you telling me these things? What can I do with them? And so he has been emphatic uh, with his audience, and we're going to just briefly review uh, how he has approached this end-time teaching with his followers, intending the message to go way past them, To reach us. And that's what this morning is about. The generation, the time we live in right now. Now, as he unrolled this prophecy, uh, they're out of sequence. And he has left it to uh, his servants to line it up. So let's briefly look. Just if you have Mark open, you just stay there with me. I'm not going to read from it, but I'm going to take uh, the sections, the paragraphs, verses one through two, one and two. Uh, Jesus told them of the utter obliteration of that second Jewish temple that Zerubbabel had built, and then Herod had come along and expanded it, uh, and, and it was a significant uh, expansion. 
In verses 3 through 13, uh, Jesus told of the many tribulations that would take place from the time that that temple was destroyed to uh, the next phase, uh, which we have been living in and are still a part of. Then from verses 14 through 23, he told of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So again, 3 through 13, he says, well, this is this kind of trouble you're going to face as people on earth. And then he jumps ahead to the middle of the Great Tribulation, which knocks it out of sequence. And there he spoke of the abomination of desolation that will take place in the third Jewish temple that has not yet been built. In verses 24 through 27, he spoke of his return to earth. That would end the Great Tribulation period. The Great Tribulation period lasts for seven years, but three and a half, those last three and a half years will intensify on Israel. And when he comes, he puts an end to the Great Tribulation and human rule, and he himself will rule the world from Jerusalem. In verses 28 through 31, which we have this morning, he is warning us, he is telling us, here are the signs. These signs will tell you that my return is imminent. And we have to open that up, which we, uh, I hope to do. And then the last section, verses 32 through 37, which hopefully we'll get next session. Jesus emphasized very much to his followers, being us, those living during the time that verses 28 and 31 begin, he emphasizes us to watch. And that is, um, uh, makes it real to us. In a single verse, now departing from that brief review, brief review, in a single Old Testament verse, God makes this statement about making a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. Now, he does this throughout the scripture. Uh, he, he did it with uh, Cain and Abel. He did it with Noah and the antediluvians who perished in the flood. He's done it throughout. But here, he, it's just a very uh, clear statement. Exodus 8, and he's talking, this is uh, in the days when Moses and Aaron were facing Pharaoh in Egypt. God said, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. And we have every reason to believe that he is not going to depart from that, but continue with that approach, which leads us to the pre-tribulation removal of the church, the body of believers, which will be our first topic. We're talking, we're talking about evacuation before invasion. The invasion is when Christ returns. He's going to invade this planet with the armies of heaven. It will be every bit of a spiritual and physical invasion. But prior to that, seven years prior to that, there is what we know as the rapture of the church, the true church. And the rapture is the removal. It is God evacuating his citizens and this is not something new in the scripture. There's other cases of this. Uh, it, it, Lot was evacuated from Sodom and Gomorrah before the judgment fell. Uh, believers 
which I hope we all are, and if you're not a believer, maybe you will be by the time this message is over, but believers have a, at the very least, a dual citizenship. One in heaven and one on earth. Now, of course, you can hold multiple citizenships on earth, but essentially you have a citizenship in heaven and one on earth. The one in heaven is your dominant citizenship. You must not ever lose sight of that. It's very important. Because as uh, the, your national um, comforts and pride are eroded, you have to default to your dominant citizenship, which is that in heaven. So Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, this globalization, this spirit of globalization that has been upon us is, uh, includes eroding nationalism. So that the world can say, well, you belong to us. And not, uh, you know, you can't be a patriot. You have to be a globalist. That's what they're trying to, to do. And to do this, they're trying to strip, at least in this nation, um, our identity as Americans. Take away from us our freedoms and uh, the First Amendment, the Second, on, on and on it goes. Now, that's what's going on. Don't be shaken by these things, or at least not too much. The rapture has as its objective to remove believers from what is coming. And so, you know, we talk about the rapture. There are those in Christianity that believe the church will be raptured halfway through the tribulation. Uh, who knows other points, which I don't agree with. I believe in a pre-great tribulation removal of the body of believers because there's no way I can explain it out of Scripture. First, Thessalonians. Now, remember, if you're going to be a student of end times, a caution. We have no right to be only a student of end times. There's a whole Bible to know. There's a lot of information and a lot of work to do. But we should have an end time view. Uh, in, in order in our heads. To get that, you're going to have to read and take some time in the book of Daniel, some time in Ezekiel, uh, in the New Testament, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, for sure, the book of Revelation, the Olivet Discourse, which is what we're studying in Mark. We're going to get to Mark this morning. Mark my word. But First Thessalonians, speaking about the removal of the church. Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, if the church is going to get, have to go through some of the tribulation, there's no comfort. I can't be comforted because there's going to be a lot of trouble on this planet at the very beginning. Wars, natural disasters, unlike ever before. And that's just leading up to the three and a half year period. And so when Paul says comfort one another with these words, there would be no comfort if I had to endure these things. He continues in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to wrath. Again, this is in the context of the end times and uh, the rapture, the removal of the church. He continues, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Was well, plain speak to me. 
He did not appoint us to wrath, which the great tribulation period is an outpouring of God's wrath on sinners. 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore, uh, 5.11, he repeats himself, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another. Because he's talking about end times, he's saying, you should be built up learning about the prophecies that are still to be fulfilled concerning the return of Christ. You should be comforted by this, and you should be built up, and then you should build up others with this information. Pretty much what I was reading from Peter at the beginning this morning. But perhaps the strongest single verse in the New Testament, because it is illustrated in the Old Testament. Uh, For example, again, Lot and uh, Noah. But uh, Revelation 3.10 i got to pause here. There are some that think that the church means uh, this universal, disconnected body. That is part of the definition of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. But there is the local church, where the emphasis is. And when Paul called the elders from the local church in Ephesus to meet him at Miletus, everything he said was with this mindset that we assemble. That's what we do as Christians. Satan hates it. The lazy don't like it. And there are others who find reasons not to do it. And you are non-compliant with Scripture. I do not say this because I'm a pastor. I say it because I'm a Christian. And it's very clear in the Scripture. And you have missed formation when you abandon the church. As Paul uh, writes to the Hebrews, uh, forsaking the assembly. Well, when Christ writes to the seven churches, he's writing to assemblies, not this detached bunch of believers doing their own thing. And it is an assembly with a structure. He himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, the assembly. The Jews had their synagogues. They still do. We have our churches, and Christ died for the church, for the called out ones. He gave his life for the church, purchased it, we're told in the Bible, with his own blood. And so I won't tolerate any conversation that goes for something less. Now, there are some that cannot meet. They cannot assemble. They may have some illness or some other condition. Of course, that's understandable. But there are others that... Um, I, I fear, are uh, neglecting a very easy calling. It is hard to go to church and stay, continue to go to church. Satan hates you doing it. He wants to break down your loyalty. If we could have Christians that had truth and love and loyalty, we'd get a lot more done as a body of believers. But these things are evasive. Well, that was just part of everything else that's coming. Back to this statement Jesus makes to the church in ancient Turkey in a city called Philadelphia. He says, because you have kept my command to preserve, pardon me, to persevere, (laughs) similar, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Well, when he spoke it to that church, there was no trial coming upon the whole earth, and there has not been a trial come upon the whole earth like the one that's coming. He is talking about the great tribulation period. 
And so he says to this body of believers who have persevered and kept to his command, which is his word, I'm going to spare you from this tribulation that is coming. I'm not going to wrap you in bubble wrap. I'm going to snatch you out of here. There's a lot of error in human theology due to a misunderstanding as far as making the difference between the church and the nation Israel. They're not the same. They are connected. There are similarities, but they are not identical. And if you, uh, if you cannot make that distinction, you're likely going to be a legalistic person. Uh, you're going to miss the emphasis of grace in your Christian walk. At least that's been my experience. But this tribulation period, uh, the three and a half for Israel, as I mentioned, comes from this verse, one of many. But Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the prophet says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Israel's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. You see, the, the original, the Hebrew says Jacob's trouble. Well, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. We know it's, he's talking about Israel. I have just given you an interpretive rendering of that verse. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. And how will they be saved out of it? By the return of the Lord. With the armies of heaven, us, along with him. The church age, with its removal, completes that dispensation, that period of time. But it leaves behind the false church, which is two parts to the false church. It is apostate. In other words, it's fallen away from the scripture, from God's word. It really doesn't even believe in God's word. That then brings in the second part. It is ecumenical. That means that it can pray with and include and mix in other religions without any disturbance to its conscience. Because it is dead completely. It is the apostate church. It is the great harlot that is mentioned in Revelation 18 and 19. And the harlot is the one that is unfaithful. When she rides the beast, she is, so to speak, the state church that is tolerated for a while by Antichrist until finally he exalts himself and have, will have none of that and uh, destroys even that. The true church is not apostate. Again, Revelation chapter 3 the same church that he said, I'm going to spare you this great tribulation. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. When did he do that? At Pentecost, when the church was born. I'll come back to that in a moment. And no one can shut it. The church will be here. The true church, there will be at the very least a remnant of the true church preaching the word of God from the word of God. He says, for you have a little strength, is that not the church? Have kept my word and have not denied my name. You see the contrast between all of these ecumenical churches that are out there that have denied the Lord's name, that are not keeping his word, that are not persevering according to his commandments, that are telling you there are many roads that go to heaven and just pick one. It we're not the only ones with it. 
You can find it in the Jewish synagogues, in the, in the, in the Muslim mosque. You can find it uh, under some tree. If you're doing Zen Buddhism or something, all these roads lead to heaven. That's the lie that they're telling people. And you will know them by their fruits. And the fruit will be, uh, of course, whether it is true and sweet according to Scripture or if it's rotten according to men. The church, the New Testament church, it was supernaturally injected into human history at Pentecost. There's no explanation for it. There's no way it should have survived. Those Jews should have shut it down if it weren't for God. But it was for God. So it was supernaturally injected. It will be supernaturally ejected. And that is the rapture of the church, the evacuation of believers, the removal of the true assembly, which will be outlawed during Antichrist time anyway. And God knows, he sees this happening. And so I believe in the pre-tribulation removal of the church because I believe the Bible teaches it and I'm not uh, ever going to be in a mood to explain it away. Uh, also, who needs the 144,000 and the two witnesses if the church is still here preaching the truth? Uh, we need these supernaturally, or that's divinely protected believers, because their message will be intolerant, but God will protect them. Because there is, again, the assembly of believers outlawed. Listen, we just saw, listen, I hope you've been listening. We just saw in our country, in the world, Citizen pitted against citizen to make sure you're wearing your mask the right way. Well, in the time of Antichrist, they're going to be citizen pitted against any citizen who decides they're going to preach from the Bible what it says. My point is, there will be those to make sure there's no preaching of the truth without consequence. And thus the tribulation converts and the tribulation martyrs and the tribulation uh, 144,000 Uh, who are protected, and the two intolerant preachers of God's truth who lead the 144,000 to Christ, they will be uh, protected only for a while. And then they too will not be tolerated. So, the return of Christ, uh, well, the return for his church is the evacuation. The return seven years later with his church is the invasion. Jude chapter, pardon me, Jude 14, the 14th verse of Jude. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Uh, That goes along with what Jesus was saying here in uh, verse uh, 24. But in those days after the tribulation, and he talks about the sun being dark, dark, and he says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And that will be us with him. Uh, he, he's not coming alone, though he could. Revelation 19.14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, taking no nonsense. <laughs> it doesn't say that last part, but that's what's happening. Uh, now, hold that into your thoughts, uh, that part about uh, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Just bookmark that. The objective, when he returns with us, is to rescue Israel from extinction 
and to rescue humanity, what's left of it, from extinction. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, if you say, I don't like that, it's too bad. You're not liking it, it's not going to make it go away. Uh, not liking what the Bible teaches does not stop it. It continues on. And it will outlive everybody who is against it. But there in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is saying God is going to come deal with this. He is not going to wink at injustice and corruption and all the evil done to his people and the blasphemy against his name. And then he continues. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all who believe. To be admired. To go, yes, the beauty of the Lord. Something to behold. It is going to happen. You don't, well, I'll say it this way. In my younger years as a Christian, it was very easy to feel Christianity. I could feel it when I did sing. I could feel it. But as the years have rolled by and I've taken so many hits, and I'm not the only, any pastor will tell you this if he's been around long enough. It's more faith than anything else. It's more of, I know this is the way, the truth, and the life. And I don't care how I feel. I know this is it. This is my God. This is my Savior. And I don't need anything to help me uh, with this. I have him. And so uh, my point is, uh, when the end comes, whether you like it or not, it's coming. It's best to be on that side that is going to win. And that is the side of Jesus Christ. So the two stages. Now, I know I'm I'm repeating myself, and I must. Because there are those who do not have a clear understanding of the end times. And to, to sort of reinforce the lesson, I will repeat things. Uh, such as, first comes the rapture, the removal of the church. That is the, uh, ignites the powder keg. That lights the wick. And then the seven-year period of great tribulation. Then the Lord returns. Then comes his thousand-year reign. And then Satan is let loose again for a little while after a thousand years. And Satan meddles with humans who were born during that thousand-year period. And he will gain those who come to his side. And they will rebel against God. And God will take them out instantly. And then God will end the world as we know it. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And these things won't even come to mind. And he'll, I'll get to that quote uh, later, if you stop slowing me down. So, the two stages of his return. The rapture, launching the great tribulation, just as when the Jews took the Passover feast, while they were eating that meal, the feast of, Paso- of, of, wheat, of uh, unleavened bread would then start. It, it, would, it would roll, they, they were merged, they were joined together. One would move right into the other. And so in Scripture, sometimes when they talk about these two feasts, they put them together as though it's one feast. Uh, and you'd have to know the details to make the distinction. Well, the rapture, the rapture starts the Great Tribulation period. Uh, that is uh, from evacuation and ending when Christ invades uh, the world to take it back. The Great Tribulation period that is coming is not hell broke loose. Hell can't break loose. God is sovereign. And he is not subject to anything from hell. 
Hell is not the opposite of God. There's no yin-yang kind of thing going on here. God is sovereign over hell, and he will let it loose, giving those, the world, as a unit, that uh, everything they want, they want to listen to the lies out of hell, so God is going to give them the hell that they want to listen to. Uh, he, He sends the messengers to give an alternative, a way of escape, and they're going to kill them, most of them. Isaiah 13, verse 9 The day of the Lord starts with the rapture. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. I told you I was going to read to you that the the great tribulation period was this wrath of God poured out on the earth. And there is one of the verses that teaches us about it. Those submitted to God will enter the kingdom of God when he returns. And those who reject him will be taken away to judgment. And so when he says uh, in Luke, uh, one of these apostles, Mark, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Okay, then what happens? Then he judges those living during the great tribulation period and having sent his angels out to preach the gospel and his servants, uh, they will have no excuse. And then Luke 17, verse 35, two women will be grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. I know that when you read that, it, it reads as though this is the rapture. Well, it's true of the rapture, but in the context that it was given it is the judgment in, in the beginning of his return. Matthew twenty five forty six. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you see there's the context of it being at his return, because that does not take place at the rapture. So the three aspects, one more time. Evacuation. The invasion, seven years later, and then the judgment and occupation. So it kind of works out because I'm really that smart. Now, that's not funny. I got feelings. (laughs) Evacuation, invasion, occupation. Uh, That's just too easy. Anyway, so the question I was asked about all this last week was, will we be raptured with our clothes on? That is a good question. It's cute, but it's a good question. Because I'm fighting thoughts about full moons and things like that on the way up. Yes and no. Yeah, we will have clothes on. That's the first answer. But they won't be these clothes. And for some of you, that will be a great relief for the rest of us. But (laughs) I see you've been raiding the lost and found again. (laughs) I mean, men's fashion has been dead for... Okay, back to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. That's a dual meaning. It's a spiritual, yes, we're covered in Christ. But also, remember we're riding back in white linen? Uh, That's connected. And aren't we glad that we're not going up that way? Uh, 
1 Corinthians 15, 51. This is, is where Paul is talking about the rapture. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So we have that justification, sanctification, glorification. These bodies aren't fit for the eternal, for the atmosphere. I mean, we can't even make it in in places on earth. Uh, So the body has to be changed, and so will the garment be changed as an indication of all these things. Glorified bodies fit for a glorious atmosphere, while our present clothing will vanish into oblivion. Cotton is just not going to help you out in the spiritual realm. And uh, is, so we're going to have to First Corinthians. I want to stay on this a little bit because I liked it. Um, and, 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 and I got the okay from God to do it. So I hope it's beneficial. Oh, go back to with me in First Corinthians where he says, uh, we shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, but we shall be changed in a moment, in an instant twinkling of an eye, just like that. That's going to take place. When God says, when he's, the last trumpet sounds, the change is going to be instant. The last trumpet, the Roman army, which Paul uses as his template for these analogies, and even the Jews in the, in the wilderness, but back to the Roman one. They had three trumpets for their uh, armies. Uh, the first trumpet meant break camp. The second trumpet meant line up. And the third trumpet said, let's march. And that's the last trumpet, let's, let's march. And so when Christ blows that last trumpet to pull his church out, that's the reference. Matthew 9, verse 6. No, let's do 1 Corinthians 53. For this incorruptible man, this incorruptible must, well, I'm showing a lot of corruption in speech right now. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. We're not fit for heaven physically. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We can't die. Uh, we, we're fitted with a new body. The organs won't break down. The things that make us live, they'll, they'll not fail. Um, do we have air conditioning in this church? I'm just curious. Are you, are you how are you? <laughs> are you guys hot, cold, or muggy or anything out there? Who's muggy? <laughs> Thank you. There's a few of you that are courageous enough to say, I mean, my hands are sticking to the pulpit, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm fine. If if you all are fine, you all come first. Fine. (laughs) All right. In a moment, twinkle of eye, we got that part. So, uh, Matthew 9, 16. No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. And, of course, he's talking about is coming and, you know, uh, just you, you, you can't take old things and put them on new things when it's time for the new thing. This is not a good fit. Is there precedence? Yes. Has this happened before? Second Kings. This is Elijah being taken up in that chariot. Then it happened as they continued on and talked. It's Elijah and Elisha, his disciple, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. 
and separated the two men. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. That's a lamentation and amazement at the same time. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. So the cloak that Elijah the prophet had, that was discarded and Elisha picked it up. Picked it up, and uh, with it he parted the Jordan. It was it was part of his uh, uh, ministry, his tool. Anyway, there the great prophet was taken up into heaven. He had no need for a cloak where he was going, and uh, uh, back to the white robes. No jeans, t-shirts, dresses, suits, and ties in heaven appears. And you can cross-reference this in Revelation one thirteen, where Jesus himself. Uh, uh, manifest himself to John and he is clothed with a robe down to his feet and Revelation 4, 4, 7, 9 just throughout Revelation just take your concordance look up the word clothed in the book of Revelation and you will see that there is an emphasis placed on our being in proper attire Matthew 22 verse 11 but when the king this is a parable of Christ and he's speaking about showing up in improper attire But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless and then he was judged. And so, yeah, there it matters. It does count. And uh, I thought it was a good question. Verse 28. Now, now we begin. Now we begin. Verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So he's drawing from his surroundings. He's saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay something to illustrate for you. Uh, you know, uh, a pound of illustration is worth a ton of explanation. But here's another for, metaphor with the, old, uh, with the fig tree, which is the... Old Testament standard for singling out Israel and making a distinction between Israel and all the other nations. Israel's the fig tree. You, you wouldn't say that of, the, of, of Egypt. You would not say that of Syria. It was Israel. That's the fig tree. And so when he says, learn this parable from Israel, you see, now, now we understand that Uh, This is making a a lot more sense. The fruitless fig tree that he talked about in chapter 11 symbolized the corruption of her leaders. But this is different. This is, uh, he's picturing this fig tree with its foliage reviving, indicating a new season, a productive nation, indicating that his return is imminent. It's, it's going to happen, and he puts the barrier on it, or the, or the boundaries on it, the, in this generation, which we'll get to. And so having taught about his return after the Great Tribulation in verse 24, he now returns to events leading up to the Great Tribulation. That's where we are in the sequence of end times events here in verse 28. 
what happens before the rapture. The rapture is coming, the removal of the church. What happens right before that? That's this 28th verse. And he is indicating that those who are going to be living right before that moment, there will be signs that the day of the Lord is about to happen. And again, the rapture lights the fuse. He says, when its branch has already become tender. This has revived Israel. And it is a part of the processes of growth. They have started. It is out of its dormant stage. And you know, in wintertime, the trees are bare. The sap's not flowing. And as spring approaches, you start seeing the buds on the trees and then the leaves. And you know the saps are flowing and, and, and summer is near. He says, and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Israel, in this illustration of the Lord, is very important. It's still showing only leaves. There's no fruit. They still don't believe. Still a Christ-rejecting nation. A present fact for us right now. But this much has happened in our lifetime. Israel is back in the land. That is the beginning of this verse. When you see the fig tree producing life, when you see the sap flowing, Israel, that's what he's talking about. They're back in that land after 2,000 years of not having their own state, their own nation. They're back just in time to start fulfilling this prophetic word in our lifetime. The rebirth of the state of Israel tells us that the Lord's return is at the doors. Now, we've got to be careful here because we don't want to be loony and go away from the scripture. We don't no need for that. There's enough here to excite us. What uh, remains to happen before the rapture? Nothing. It can happen at any minute. There's no other prophecy we're waiting on. Uh, once Israel got back in that land, that was it. There was nothing left to wait for. Is that a technology to fulfill some of the Old Testament stuff, perhaps? But ultimately, no prophetic event. Verse 29. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Who is you? You also. Because it certainly isn't those apostles that started this whole end time discussion. When you see this beautiful temple and he says, you're not one stone's going to remain. It's not them. As fig trees bud, uh, those buds turn into leaves. That summer is near. Revived nation of Israel. The end is at the doors. Leading up to this secret date. The date of the rapture is not given. That is top secret. But the times, the times are given. Matthew 16 Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. Why? Because they weren't listening to their scripture. That's why. We're in the same position that they were in this sense. Their Messiah was right in front of them. They had all the scripture to, to understand this. And they chose not to believe it, most of them. But others did see it. And others did surrender to it. We're living in an age where we're seeing the signs. But do we believe it? Or do we think that it's just not going to happen? It's too sci-fi. In Noah's day, it was the start of the ark's construction. When that ark started, when that first 
gopher tree fell. I mean, back then, trees looked like gophers. That's not true. It was gopher wood. And it's, only, it's called that because Noah, being an old man, sent his sons to gopher wood. <laughs> anyway, when that first tree fell, I hope that's not the only thing you remember about this morning. When the rains came, it was too late to be prepared. You were done. And if you missed the rapture, it's, you're going through the great tribulation now. There's, there's no way to get around it. So why so many verses from Jesus on these things? Because they're recognizable events. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. What do we do at recognizable events? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Why are they asking you? Because your life is a beacon, a lighthouse. God has brought them to you. And now you can share these things. I used to share the end times. Say, look, Israel's back in their land. The end is coming. I don't know the day nor the hour, but I know that that generation that has watched them become a nation again will be alive. Not all of it, of course. Not everyone. And let me open that up. Verse 30. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Assuredly. In other words, you better believe this. Once the fig tree revives, the generation, that generation is going to participate. And uh, again, not the generation that heard him speak these words, Peter and John and the, the apostles. That generation long since passed. What generation? Well, the precise length of a generation is unclear in Scripture, but we've got some hints it is an elastic unit, but it, we know that it, it includes contemporaries, witnesses. There will be those who have seen the tree come back in to life, and they will be alive and participate in these events. When Jesus prophesied of the destruction of the temple and that the Jews would be dispersed, he said that generation... In Matthew 23, verses 34 through 39, he predicted the doom of their existing nation while he lived. And he said that generation would see it. Well, he gave that prophecy in 33 AD. It was fulfilled in its completion in 135 AD. That's about 100 years. So when he makes reference to a generation there, it's about 100 years. When... He spoke to Abraham and said, your descendants are going to go to Egypt. That generation uh, there, <clears throat> it's in Genesis 15 verses. We don't have time for me to read it out. Verses 13 through 16, again, <clears throat> appears to be about 100 years. Are we to say, well, it is a hundred years? No, we cannot say. Can we say, well, when Christ used it and other parts of Scripture used it, there is that thought that it is about a hundred years somewhere in that number. Can it happen before it gets to almost a hundred? Sure it can. These are just the boundaries. So he says, watch the fig tree. And uh, Israel is that fig tree. Recovered from her great diaspora being pushed out throughout the world, she is revived now. Ours has to be the generation that he is speaking. 
I believe there now. So, okay, let's let's open that a little bit more. When does the countdown start? Is it 1948 when Israel became a sovereign state? Does the clock start ticking then on May 14th, 1948? Or is it June 7th, 1967 when the Jews took back Jerusalem and Mount Moriah? You see, Christ, remember I started out saying these are revelations from him. Peter said, knowing these things, we're supposed to do just what I'm doing right now. Explore them. We're not supposed to say, well, we don't know the date or the hour. There's no point in even looking at it. No, we're not. We are supposed to be considering these things. And as the generations get closer and closer to the event, history tells us, that the church will know more and more about what is unfolding before them. And we have so much knowledge now as Bible teachers about the end times, so much more than someone like Martin Luther or John Wesley. Uh, their end time views were just, they weren't even there almost compared to what we know now. And so, uh, I like the 1967 one. Because that was a good year for baseball. I know some of you don't even know what baseball is. But that's okay. We, we love you. Just not as much as other baseball fans. <laughs> and of course, baseball is in the Bible. There's this whole beginning conversation in the book of Genesis. In the beginning. <laughs> You know I only preach what's in the Bible. <laughs> Verse 31. Let's finish this this morning. So what I've given you is some boundaries for generation. If just looking at the scripture as a student, we say, you know what? It's probably going to be this longer stretch that's a good, very good chance. If so, you've got another 24, 40-some years maybe. We just better be ready whenever it happens. Next week we get into, you don't know when the day is or the hour, but you still will know the season. And that's what we'll cover next session. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Heaven and earth being the visible creation of Genesis 1. Uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So God is saying, when I end this world, after that thousand year period plus, I'm going to wipe it out. It's not salvageable. The, entire, the universe, Jupiter will be gone. And the rest of them. Um, and then he starts, he, he will create a new universe. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12, looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, which starts at the rapture. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. This is at the end of the day of the Lord. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isaiah 66, verse 22 now. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your descendants and your name remain. In other words, the Jews will not perish. And that is Isaiah is saying, uh, even when I create a new heavens and earth, the righteous will make it through. 
Again, I hope, I hope that we're getting this, that end time prophecy is important to the Lord and it should be important to us. My words will by no means pass away, verse 31. Only God could say that. Imagine if I said, listen, uh, you know, my words will not pass away. You would la- it would be laughable. Unless, of course, I was, never, never mind. For him to say this is an indication of his deity. Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. He says, I say to you. And that is a significant element of the New Testament. And why those who reject him being God the Son will be held accountable. Jesus is God the Son of God the Father. And so, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the word of God stands forever. Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His wrath on sinners in the great tribulation will be just. And I'm done with this verse. Verse, we have communion. So I can just keep going, can't I? (laughs) Revelation 22, verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Why would he have to say that to John? For us. He wanted it in writing. He wanted us to hear that his words, he he repeats this throughout the Bible, are faithful and true. Because our flesh is so sinister that it will doubt any chance it gets to doubt unless it is smacked down with truth in faith. And so he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. He sent his angel to show us. And we're not supposed to dismiss it. Let's pray. Our Father, a tremendous amount of information in your word about tremendous events. They yield rewards to us when we labor in study and consideration. It is very important to you that we preach these things. They're not revealed to us so that we can ignore them, but they are to make us stronger and even give us material to share with the lost. Because the lost cannot dispute the many prophecies that are being fulfilled in our lifetime in preparation for the conclusions. If you have been listening to me this morning and you have never given your life to Christ, the wrath of God is upon you. It is a fact. It is what he says, not me. However, that wrath can be removed, but you have to come to him. You must open your heart and receive him. You must believe him for what he says. If you would like to come to Christ, and if you make such a prayer as I'm about to share, then you will belong to him. And the wrath will be off of you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. And I give my life to you right here, right now. There is no one else worthy to die in my place and take my punishment except you. There is no one worthy other than 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I give my life to you right here, right now. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they be sincere with it, and may you protect their confession. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.